Today I'm speaking with Arest Zub, traveler, blogger, and online entrepreneur from Lviv. He has been reporting on the war in Ukraine from the start via his YouTube channels in Ukrainian and English. Before the war, Arest visited over 120 countries, including many regions experiencing conflict. But as he says, he could never have imagined that full-scale war would come to his own country. Arest's aim is to inform the global community of what is really happening in Ukraine and to provide informational resistance to the occupier. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please do like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of the channel and, of course, to help new people discover the amazing guests. So I'm delighted to welcome you onto the channel. Hello, yeah, thanks for having me, and I'm very honored to, to be a guest here. And we should point out as well, I've, al I've already had the pleasure of interviewing your wife, who is an expert on uh, modern Ukrainian art uh, and its role in Ukrainian identity and resistance, uh, Marta. So I highly recommend people sort of go and watch that video after they've seen this one. Uh, so Absolutely. Marta is the... A good ambassador of Ukrainian cultural front. That's how we say it, yeah. <laughs> and I think we can see some fantastic uh, uh, paintings on the back wall there of, uh, of the room you're in. So, uh, yeah, that's brilliant. Now, you've traveled a lot, obviously. You've traveled outside of uh, of Ukraine extensively. So you've sort of seen a lot of other cultures. You've seen uh, a lot of other countries, cities, how they function and so on. Um, and yet, as you say, you never expected to see some of those traumas and issues you saw in countries you visited actually, uh, you know, be inflicted upon your own country? Well, you know, yes, because mostly when people travel to other areas and they see, let's say, like, let's say, third world countries or some conflict zones or like places devastated after some disasters, they, uh, you know, they, they feel sad, maybe they do something, they speak about this, but then eventually they're still a guest, yes, and usually people are very grateful that it didn't happen to them it didn't happen to their loved ones and eventually didn't happen uh, to their home so uh, starting from late 2000s i've been traveling extensively around the world and uh, visited many conflict zones you know like uh, it's uh, like many places let's say impoverished places in india uh, like my first real conflict area that i visited was um, uh, Kashmir in northern India, which is the um, disputed territory between India, Pakistan, and China, is trying to push over there as well. I was there during the riots, uh, during the curfew, and so on. Uh, then Palestine, uh, uh, many countries in Western Africa, many neighborhoods, uh, dangerous neighborhoods in all around Latin America. So uh, I've seen this stuff, right? But I was still like, was feeling uh, privileged, let's say, coming from a European country, even though this Ukraine. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, it, it was like, it felt very distant. Uh, however, um, first of all, yeah, you have to re remember that the war in Ukraine started actually in 2014, not in 2022. Yeah. I just want to remind you that 2014, Russia annexed Crimea and started the open war in Donbass. But even then, it was still, you know, it was like kind of like a frozen conflict. So we didn't extend beyond the, the, the front line, which was uh, static for, for like six years. So uh, it was never like really felt 
that in this extent as we are seeing this now uh, during the full-scale invasion. And just one week before the actual invasion of Russia to, on Ukraine, after like, they amassed all the forces uh, along our borders, I was visiting uh, Karabakh. Karabakh, this is the area, also the conflict area between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which is the battlefield for like centuries. Uh, however, according to international law, uh, this is under the jurisdiction of Azerbaijan, but being occupied uh, by Armenia since the early 90s. And uh, in the recent years, uh, Azerbaijan executed like very successful uh, counteroffensive, actually uh, liberating those territories. Uh, still, may, some of them are under uh, Nagorno-Karabakh Armenian control. There was uh, this kind of like Lachin corridor, the international zone, which was uh, under control of Russian peacekeepers. You know, like many parties involved. And there, I truly seen the devastated consequences of a many years long-term war with uh, cities. Uh, which population before the conflict was like up to 100,000 people, completely devastated. You know, like if you look on the horizon, you see only ruins. And, and you know, and at that time, it was already kind of, you know, the situation in Ukraine was heating up. Uh, I remember I was seeing like Azeri soldiers telling like Ukrainians, hold on, we are with you. Um, then uh, I still thought like, oh my gosh, like this is so terrible. Uh, thanks God it never happened uh, in, in Ukraine, even though the risk was already pretty high back then. However, uh, you know, as we all of like most of us as read in the Black Swan book, uh, book uh, you never believe it until it actually happens. So uh, four days after my arrival back to Ukraine, uh, Russia invaded and we've seen those uh, like rockets flying over our country with the massive artillery fire and so on. Uh, basically, uh, you, you told that I never imagined this could happen. Like I never imagined, but uh, being in a different countries around the world, uh, kind of like getting a little bit at least of the clue how the macro geopolitical uh, processes um, uh, develop, uh, I was sure that there will be continuation of... Um, um, uh, clash between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, little did they know how it will happen. So most people, they understood, okay, like Russia is amassing troops, there probably will be some new escalation phase from the Donbass, you know, they will try to push from the east. Uh, but the fact with uh, dozens of rockets flying across the country, hitting uh, military, civilian and uh, infrastructure objects, thousand kilometers away from the Russian border uh, with like massive invasion from the north of Ukraine towards Kiev, this was really beyond imagination. So that was a big surprise for everybody, I believe. Uh, and then we take it from there because then the rest is the history and we all witness what happened afterwards. And of course, we've seen uh, Grozny, which was flattened twice, uh, we've seen Aleppo. So we know that when Russians decide to uh, use their very, you know, heavy handed tactics, we know what can happen to cities. But I guess, you know, no one was expecting them to use those same tactics on Ukrainian cities because 
you know, you've got this propagandistic idea of brotherly nations. And in fact, Ukraine, Belarus formed a core part of the, you know, the Soviet Union as an entity. And so I guess in our minds, we thought, well, the Russians are not going to treat um, Ukraine like that. And even more so, those Ukrainians in the east of the country who may be, uh, you know, their first language may be Russian in Kharkiv, Dnipro and other, in Mariupol, again, we, we, we might have been, um, you know, had the false impression that Russia might have treated them in a humane fashion. But we're right back to Stalingrad in the 1930s, aren't we? Extraordinary inhumane treatment. Yeah, like that's uh, absolutely like this is the one of the trickiest questions. Like, okay, if you're because everybody was speaking about this year ago when the the um, escalation like started when the invasion started. Now many things are clear, but I just want to remind people that one of the objectives objectives of Russian invasion is uh, liberation of uh, brothers in Ukraine. So uh, uh, most people who lived in the east and south of Ukraine, those areas which actually are affected by Russian invasion, the areas that are occupied, they are native Russian speakers. Uh, so a brother doesn't come to, to another brother like this. Yeah, And uh, people who lived in those areas, they like suffered the most like their houses were damaged uh, their their uh, souls were were killed and what we witnessed in the very beginning is that if before the invasion because of the cultural connections maybe some family members on the both sides of the border a lot of like um, media uh, interconnection yes like many ukrainian russian speaking pop stars were equally popular in russia for example you know like even zelensky before 2014 was doing his shows you know stand-up comedies in moscow so uh like it was expected that okay maybe we still can have some understanding this was like the part of population uh, which Russia was relying in terms of their like um, influence over Ukraine and their relations uh, on Ukraine, but when they started to uh, like shoot to 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 shell Kharkiv, Mariupol, uh, Mykolaiv, Kherson, you know, you name it, all these cities, uh, for for people who still felt a little bit connected to Russian culture, because I'm telling like comparison this because I am based currently in Lviv. And I grew up in Lviv, like so. For for me, I'm like only like very Western oriented person. For me, Russian culture is equal to Turkish in terms of uh, how connected I am. Yeah, uh, but for them, it was like much closer. And when this happened, uh, the entire world of 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 people like collapsed. They like, how can you do this? So. I witnessed that many uh, people started to convert to Ukrainian language just not to be associated uh, with anything Russian. Yes, uh, uh, one of my early interviews, uh, like made in March, I I'm interviewing a girl from Odessa. She's uh, Maria Sabova, like very popular blogger in Ukraine, who was speaking like Russian because she had audience in Kazakhstan and Moscow and Russia in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, like... Uh, completely integrated with the 
like this post-Soviet uh, sphere of spheres, yeah? Then she was telling like, no way I'm going to speak Russian again. I changed my YouTube channel only to Ukrainian language because I don't want to be associated with this country and with these people. And uh, this like, the, the world, the view of the world collapsed for many people who didn't understand like, how is this possible in general? And it's we can see it's a big red line in in the historical perspective as well. This completely separates the further development of two big largest Slavic nations. Uh, we can say, uh, and it definitely uh, eventually gives the answers who is who and who which intentions have. Yeah, and. If that just like became clear eventually that uh, unfortunately uh, Russia historically was always suppressing Ukrainians uh, as crazy as it sounds in the 21st century in the time of technology we are back to century long uh, suppression uh, we are back to uh, elimination on the cultural level and uh, this just shows that uh, I mean there is no road together. Ukraine is the integral part of the European community. Uh, and uh, we are super grateful to all the like Western allies and uh, all the people who, who supported us in such a crucial time. This develops much more ties between us and the Western world and uh, starts a fundamental uh, process of integrating Ukraine into the Western cultural sphere. So that's what I see is very important. Um, so this, you know, uh, this resolves a very complicated question of Ukrainian identity for a long period. And this eventually, uh, from the historical perspective, uh, continues simply like uh, how the world and history goes always always changing always something old forms into something new yeah because without russian aggression in 2014 and i know you know the the aggression didn't quite start then you know obviously has a long history and even under yeltsin and so on you know that there's an uneasy relationship there and is russia interfering is it not um but that becomes overt in 2014 and to some extent Without Russian aggression, if Russia was a good neighbor, then it would have a considerable degree of soft power uh, within Ukraine. It would have uh, the ability to to make treaties that were favorable to it, economic treaties. It would have the ability to potentially persuade Ukraine to be relatively neutral uh, in that sort of buffer space between uh, the EU. But it's their very aggression that seems to have accelerated the Europeanization of um, of uh, Ukraine. And they've now done that, obviously, to the West uh, after 2014. But now they've done that in the East. I mean, there are going to be very few people. I would even bet, even within the occupied Donbass, that once the Russian propaganda is switched off, there are going to be very, very few people who are, you know, sympathetic or would want to be part of the Russian Federation. We will see how it goes. We will see how it goes. You know, it's just, um, I, I think we reached the point when we cannot simply uh, trust any single word what's coming from the East because, um, I mean, you have, uh, you told that one of your in-depth interviews is touching the topics of Holodomor, right? 
is the artificially made huge famine in the, in the early 30s of the 20th century, where uh, approximately 4 million Ukrainians start, were starved to death. You know, like this is the uh, direct effect of Russian uh, administrative orders to eliminate Ukrainians. Yeah. Uh, then before, for three centuries, there have been issued over 100 different decrees to um, ban Ukrainian language in public space, in schools, and so on. Yeah, so this was, I mean, we were keeping very strong and for very long time, and we're tolerating so many things. But now this, like, reached this skyrocket level that, I mean, come on, like, there is nothing to talk about only. Like, uh, now the... Uh, the resolution will be on the battlefield. Like we already reached that point, and um, as our uh, governance is speaking, like there is nothing to talk about. Like, there still were some um, attempts to negotiate in in, in March, uh, as you remember. But at the moment, it's only decided on the battlefield, and uh, every society is super focused to support our army. You probably speak with many civilian activists. And you see how integrated, how interconnected uh, the civilian life and the military um, uh, spheres are. That's like it's uh, it became one single strong entity uh, at the moment. Uh, in terms of Donbas, uh, I mean, we probably developed we will develop the topic how things could uh, continue from here. Uh, it will be tough to reintegrate it back, but there should be uh, the way. Uh, obviously, we understand that uh, people were brainwashed for, for quite some time, uh, even before uh, Russia actually started to control those territories. But since 2014, Ukraine had zero control, zero influence over Donbas. And we realized that like uh, children who were born in 2014 already entered the primary uh, years at school. Uh, those children who were studying in school back in 2014 now are fighting on the opposite side of the trench uh, in the Donbas. So uh, it's a very complicated topic, yeah. And uh, there are a few uh, a few ways how it can be resolved. So we can talk about this maybe now. I know. It's it's. Uh, I mean, one of one of the speakers I'm hoping to get on the channel um, in future talks about how you decondition people when they've been in a religious cult and it kind of seems to me that russian propaganda especially when it starts at the sort of as you say the kindergarten level it's it's almost like being inducted well it's exactly like being inducted into some kind of religious cult they seem to completely rewire your brain and uh it is very difficult to to undo that kind of programming um i mean it does suggest i will give you an example mm -hmm. of this Sorry for interrupting you, no, but please. it's a good point now just to add how, how it revives your brain. Uh, my family, my grandparents, my grand, okay, let's about my grandfather and his family on the mother's line. He originated from a small village in the mountains between Slovakia and Poland, which is the historical area of Lemkivshina. So it's like areas of Lemkos, which is the like, uh, ma mountainous uh, national minority of Ukrainians. Let's put it that way. After World War II, their entire family was moved to, to uh, Ukrainian Soviet Republic and settled in Western Ukraine, not far from Lviv. Uh, 
he had seven siblings. He was the oldest son, and his second, like his younger brother, like the second oldest among the the the, the, the children, went to work on the coal mines in in the fifties to Don to Donbas area. The rest of the family uh, remained uh, in Western Ukraine. So there was very little contact between this single man and his branch of the family and entire huge family that uh, were in Western Ukraine. So I have now like 50, probably uh, three tier cousins, <laughs> you know, uh, if this possible. However, during the, um, and then he married there, he had their own family and so on. And he died very early because the conditions of workers on the coal mines are very tough and so on. However, his daughter, my mother's cousin, were visiting Lviv with her sons, like my same peers of my age. And I remember, you know, we were hosting them very nicely, offering everything we could, we could do for them. And I remember how they were impressed with the difference of uh, lifestyle. And, uh, you know, just Lviv is an amazing city. It's nice architecture and so on. So they enjoyed here. They spent a nice time. They had the family. Everything was fine. The last time they were visiting us was in 2011, probably. And then in 2012, when, uh, if you remember, Poland and Ukraine were hosting European Football Championship. It was a big event. Uh, Donetsk was one of the host cities. And in that time, because it was the reign of Yanukovych, Donetsk actually was the second richest and the most important city in Ukraine. So uh, for that occasion, I visited uh, Donbas area, traveled there, which I like to do in general, and visited my distant family. In, they lived in, in Horlivka. It's uh, one of the biggest uh, also cities in, in Donbas. Um, so like, you know, they also... Uh, invited me uh, the best they could. We had a nice lunch. I interacted with people. Uh, obviously, uh, it's a little bit more poor than, than here. But anyway, like this is the way how people live. Yeah, Everything was fine. We hugged each other. I traveled back to Lviv and told, like, we are waiting you in our like city again. You just let us know. Then when the invasion in Donbas started, Obviously, the first thing we did, we called our family, asked how are they doing, like offering them a place uh, to, to, to stay in Lviv, like just please come, uh, please come, we'll do everything for you because it might be dangerous there. And she, she told like, no, we will not go to Lviv because uh, like the Nazis will kill us there. So we tell them, like how, like, how can you do this? Like, we are your, like, uh, the nearest family here, yeah? You visited us several times. I visited you. Like, what Like what are you talking about? She's like, no, no, I, uh, like, they tell us uh, we should not go to Lviv, they will kill us. So we thought, like, okay, like, if it's your decision, please stay. Eventually... Uh, we were sending money to them because they went out of money, but they still didn't want to come to Lviv. And, you know, and after a couple of months of this misunderstanding, obviously we lost any kind of contact and Horlivka um, remained under, uh, like, occupation under the Donetsk National Republic since 2014. Like, that's it. That's the story of one family, how you lose connection. And that's a kind of 
Stockholm syndrome, isn't it? It's like uh, falling in love with your kidnapper. And it's been described that Russia is a country under one huge Stockholm syndrome, uh, you know, hostage to to the elite. Um, but it sounds very much like this. You create an environment of terror and fear and then you reprogram people. You get them to believe the most absurd things which go against their own, as you say, familial ties, go against their own experience. Um, but that, you know, it, it happens over years. But then it's it seems to me almost impossible to, you know, uh, rewire their brains after that. Uh, so that's going to be a huge challenge for sure. Um, and, and then there's the physical destruction. I mean, that might be fixed actually quicker than the psychological impact of the war. So when this is over, and I know, you know, there's a lot of uncertainties at the moment, but how do you think Ukraine is going to deal with the, the very deep trauma that this uh, war has created? You know, we can talk about the specifics of the trauma, like if you touch the topic of physical uh, destruction, I think most people who speak about this, they don't realize the scale of destruction. Uh, like, just imagine, like, the areas where you look over the horizon and everything is in ruins. Like, it's, uh, the, the movie will not explain you this. Uh, you, you have to visit and you have to see it by yourself. Uh, uh, last year, and, or even this year, like, since the start of the war, uh, I several times uh, visited personally the frontiers, the, the frontline areas. Uh, combined staying there up to three months and uh, it's a uh, you know it's a terrible picture like if you if you travel for hours between the cities and villages which are destroyed like like you know destroyed houses in some particular areas like there's not a single building that you can see which is still uh, free freestanding so the, first of all the war okay after world war ii uh, our planet didn't see a larger uh, devastation uh, of, 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 of buildings, of, of cities, than what we're experiencing now in the East. Also, it's worth mentioning that uh, Donbass is the most uh, densely urban area of Ukraine. So uh, I remember I was traveling with a Croatian guy, and when we traveled actually in the area, he was looking at the map, like one settlement, different settlement, like, but like many of the settlements, uh, which on the map looks like a small village, are actually towns with 100,000 people population, with public transport system, with pumping system, with, with uh, uh, sport halls, you know, like, it, it's, it's, it's a very densely populated and uh, built up uh, area uh, there in Donbass. Uh, so there is just a lot of, I don't know, like it, those will be like the big architectural uh, projects to be done. But uh, I think people have euphoria that uh, it will be so easy and so fast to reconstruct. For example, just a couple of days ago, uh, I was in northern Ukraine near Chernihiv. Uh, Chernihiv is the capital, provincial capital, two hours drive north of Kyiv. Uh, the city itself was besieged during the initial Russian attack on Ukraine from the north. However, the villages that surround uh, the town uh, were actually the places of the combat, of the battle. And they are 
badly destroyed like uh, they're not completely destroyed because people on the tv will tell you like everything is destroyed oh my god yeah usually if you walk and you see like let's say one building is destroyed another is still somehow standing the part of the road there is no bridge but you can take it over you know like it's in semi-live condition and uh, it's already almost a year let's say it's 10 months after the retreat of Russian forces, and uh, uh, Chernihiv is not far from Kiev, uh, but those villages, like the reconstruction there is going very slow. Like uh, some uh, private houses are being refurbished with like new roof or new windows. But otherwise, if we speak about some bigger blocks or some administrative buildings, they're still in, in rubble, you know? Uh, there are no people, like mostly adult, uh, older people remain, most of the young people left, uh, and it looks very sad. And uh, even though there are multiple reconstruction organizations being involved, it's still very slow. And is, 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 is this scale is like, it's a drop in the ocean in comparison to what's happening in, in, in Donbass. Uh, so, uh, like, I don't know uh, how it will happen. Uh, even like, let's say, Bucha and Irpin. So only in Bucha, like the place which is the suburb of Kiev, uh, the city which was like uh, um, the, all the presidents, all the high-profile politicians who were visiting our capital did the pilgrimage to Bucha, you know, like seeing all of this. It's like the most famous uh, place in the world, like the most spoken uh, city uh, during 2022 even there the reconstruction of some private houses like is now just taking pace so uh, it will take a lot of time and a lot of efforts uh, before something substantial uh, will happen and uh, you know the scale is just too huge the scale is too huge and uh, I, I visited many different conferences in regard to Ukraine uh, uh, resistance, uh, reconstruction, and so on. And uh, some people from the ministry, from ministries, even tell that uh, it will be carefully evaluated uh, what is worth to reconstruct, because uh, you know it's not a big deal to set up a, a new block. Uh, you need the entire ecosystem there. You need first of all, you need people. Uh, to live, you need children to go to kindergarten, you need adults to, you know, bake bread. Uh, uh, now, uh, as you know, uh, over 8 million Ukrainians fled the country since the war started. So many areas in the east and the south are depopulated. And uh, there's a big question what will happen there. You know, uh, obviously now all the focus goes uh, on the military front. The people are fighting. And of course, nobody is going to reconstruct anything before their place is secured. Uh, but then, uh, you know, it will take time. People will integrate in different places where they found the shelter. And it will be very hard uh, to, to bring them back. And I think that's one of the challenges as well, is on top of the refugee population, the, you know, some will come back relatively quickly when it's safe to do so. Some will take a long time to come back. And, you know, there's a family near us who are from um, Mariupol, 
And of course, there's nothing for them to go back to. I mean, they can't go back to the, the ruins of that city, even though their apartment is still standing. All the neighboring buildings, the infrastructure, the transport, everything is is gone. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't realize as well is that since independence in the 90s, a lot of uh, you know, a huge number of Ukrainians have gone to live, study, work abroad, build their lives abroad, and still have a connection with the country. So at the fall of the USSR, I believe there was a population of sort of uh, 63 million. That's actually sort of dropped from these two waves, one of uh, sort of, you know, moving abroad, working, settling abroad, um, and then the current wave. So, you know, from Russia's perspective, um, if they won this conflict, I mean, I, I, I have this terrible impression that Russia would have done a sort of ethnic cleansing on a vast scale and then they would have uh, depopulated the country further and then they would have pumped in their own poor people uh, into those territories a sort of uh, and they've done that to an extent in Donbass and Crimea haven't they yeah yeah so uh, I would like to correct you a little bit here um, when Ukraine got independence in 1991 the official population of the country was 52 million people uh, so I, I even still remember on the news, like there was this like ad, uh, we are 52 million, you know, so this like the, according to official census. And then uh, the population was dropping very fast. And if many of listeners and you particular, you will see, you will look, let's say like population changes uh, globally since 1990 until now, like last 30 years, you will see that the only region in the world which decreased in population is eastern europe which is very interesting like eastern europe and japan but japan very marginally eastern europe like significantly so uh, in absolute terms ukraine i mean it's it's nothing to be proud of but ukraine is number one country uh, who which lost the more population in absolute terms uh, start in, within the last uh, 30 years so basically, uh, 1991, we had like 52 million. In uh, 2000, uh, what, like 19, uh, 2001, uh, 2010, probably like 44. And, you know, and then decreasing from there, then we lost Crimea, we lost Donbass, even less. So, and with, with current migration, actually, I did the small research for my side because I'm in touch with Ukrainian communities globally, that... Uh, at, the, at this very moment, there are approximately 12 million Ukrainians living outside of Ukraine and approximately 30 million within uh, Ukraine, Yeah, which makes Ukrainians the second largest migrant nation in the world after Indians. Uh, uh, so it's very, you know... Still, it's like it's a huge geopolitical shift. Because on the one side, we see the population is leaving. On the other side, we see new communities being formed all around the world, which can create more useful connections between them and between Ukraine, which drags Ukraine to, to, the, to the West, yeah? which uh, strengthens international lobby. Uh, like, uh, I, I believe, uh, like, there is always somebody in the among the ministers of Canada who is Ukrainian, 
like in the last hundred years. So, you know, th th this kind of things develop and it, it builds these new ties that people will start to realize only like in decades, in generations. Uh, from the Russian perspective, this is also a very long and big geopolitical shift. You know, they are pushing, they want to control the area. So they depopulate the area now, expecting to repopulate them with Russian and seal the territory by themselves. And as you told, uh, this actually have been done. This is nothing new. Uh, Holodomor, yeah, the, the artificial famine is one of such examples when... Uh, Four million Ukrainians were starved to death. Then they were repopulated by Russian population. And this is the pretext to current problem in the East because the population was mixed. So that's that's what we have. Mm. And this is a fascinating point, I think, isn't it? Because, you know, from speaking to many Ukrainians uh, over the last year, you get the impression not only of civil society really flowering within Ukraine, and of course, that sort of growth of civil society was a key factor in the revolutions that, that happened. Um, you also get this impression that the Ukrainian diaspora abroad, they maintain their connection with Ukraine, Ukrainian culture, their roots. They feel extremely strongly about it, but they are also very active within the civil society of the countries they go to. Now, I'm going to make a very broad statement here, which some people may... may uh, not not necessarily agree with but i do not see an equivalent behavior amongst the russian diaspora generally speaking it seems to me that russians you know when they go abroad and they integrate into another society many of them live a quiet life and they get on and they earn money and they you know look after their families and whatever but they don't play that sort of active political and social role that we see ukrainians uh, forming is, is that a sort of a prejudiced view, or do you think there's some truth in that? Uh, definitely, definitely, it makes sense. And uh, this is uh, something which really differs Ukrainians and Russian identity and, and national psyche in general. You know, um, traditionally, Ukrainians are um, people who form the governance, who form communities from the bottom. People gather, you know, they exchange something, they help each other, they uh, make these like uh, general elections, they, you know, uh, try to find the leader and push him forward and so on. Uh, Russian society is traditionally subordinate authoritarian uh, vertical, where is there always like somebody strong leader at the top and he you know, sets the rules to the entire uh, population. And it was like this since like the origins of modern uh, Russian culture, you would say, yeah. Uh, there is even a very strong uh, association. It's, a, it's like actually a political term. It is called belief into the good Tsar. Uh, that uh, you, you might read about this more if you didn't uh, hear it before. So this is like um, a situation in, in Russian history which uh, tells the story that there is a peasant, he is working on his land, and then, like, a, uh, let's say, local landowner is, is coming, he, like, hits him, tells him to, to work harder, and the peasant tells, like, oh, my God, I would wish my Tsar would only know what this uh, landlord is doing to me. So, 
you know, they rely on a single strong arm in the top and uh, follow him uh, with the closed eyes. Uh, I don't want to generalize, but uh, these are two big differences between the national psyche of Ukrainians and Russians. Ukrainians build up from the bottom, while the Russian cultures build up from the top. And that that surely must be part of the solution. I mean, if Russia is going to transform, and I know we should we should mainly talk about Ukraine. I mean, it's very easy to get dragged into talking about Russia, but it it is a huge problem. Um, it seems to me that the West and policymakers have almost no idea at all uh, how to deal with Russia and what the future might hold for it. But it seems to me that the solution is there in the Ukrainian experience. If that idea of a bottom-up way of organizing society um, can be transplanted into Russia, that might be the only thing that saves it. But in order to do that, it would potentially have to fragment. Uh, there would have to be a period of, of, of chaos and fragmentation. Uh, decolonization, uh, again, is something I think people need to speak a lot more about. Um, but we can't know what's going to happen. In reality, uh, the future is much more likely that, as you said, Ukraine is going to be a fortress uh, with the front line between freedom and, um, well, whatever you want to call it, sort of Mordor, chaos, aggression. Um, how does that prospect? I mean, are people resigned to, you know, that being the future for the next couple of decades? Before we talk about this, I would like to mention a crucial topic that you talked about, uh, fragmentation of Russian Federation. Uh, I believe that uh, the war in Ukraine uh, is, uh, you know, is the resolution somehow and is the final dot uh, in the process of the solution of the Soviet Union, of the post-Soviet Union era. Uh, if you think deep, uh, Russia remains one of the last true empires, true land empires. Uh, not many people know, but uh, first of all, the uh, administrative composition of Russian Federation is very complex. There are like oblasts, there are like lands, there are some different tiers of autonomy between subjects of the Federation and so on. There are checkpoints at the border uh, because uh, modern Russia as a state is composed of uh, dozens of different nationalities. Ethnic Russians uh, constitute up to 70% of the entire population, while the rest, 30, is somebody else. Uh, Tatars, Chechens, uh, different uh, Asian Siberian tribes, you, you name it, yeah? And uh, at certain point of history, some of those uh, entities also were uh, striving for independence, but they were suppressed, and Chechen war is just one of the examples of those. So now, seeing the decline of uh, Russian strength in, in general, uh, I believe many of the local elites are also trying to envision uh, their, their way uh, to go, right? And uh, uh, I believe that until Russia remains this type of state that it is now, it will continue to be a threat uh, in, the, in the modern world. And uh, also historically, it is normal uh, for, uh, you know, it, it is written in the 
Geneva Convention that uh, every uh, nationhood has the right for their own independent state and for self-identification. So if uh, those peoples who live there, they would like to receive more autonomy and more self-identification, this is their right to stand and, and, uh, and, and get it, yes? And uh, the same we see, you know, historically how... How, how Germany was fragmented and then it consolidated into one single nation. Then we see the, uh, how Austrian empire uh, dissolved into different nation states. Yes, the Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, and now I believe it's a turn of, of Russia to dissolve into other nation states. And uh, that would be uh, one of the ways I see uh, it will develop in the next decades. Obviously, I'm, I'm aware of this. We are talking about the decades, uh, not just years. Uh, in terms of that, uh, are Ukrainians fine to be the frontier of the free world? Well, uh, it looks like this is our destiny at the moment. Uh, for the for the for the for the other countries in the West, it looks like that Ukrainians are doing this job well, and. If we are found ourselves in such a situation, uh, because, you know, you can choose many things, but you cannot choose the place where you were born and the land where you were born. Uh, we will do the job. Uh, we will do the job. Uh, but not, this is also an important topic here, not from the victim perspective, you know, because many people tell like Ukrainians, they ask for aid, uh, you like, give us armor and so on. No, no, no. Everybody does their job. Ukrainians do the job to protect Europe with arms, and we pay the biggest price, which is blood. But other European countries also participate in this by technological support, by military support, by political support, by embracing Ukrainians who also develop in different ways. Together, this is the partnership which we do to create a better world for our future. And it's been pointed out, of course, I mean, not by some Republicans, but it's been pointed out that the aid, the military aid provided to Ukraine by the US is a tiny fraction of their overall defence budget, a tiny percentage. Um, and yet what Ukraine is doing is degrading the number one strategic geopolitical enemy of the US and the world. Um, so in that perspective, it's a, it's an extraordinarily economical uh, rather than being a sort of you know as you say charity case or hugely expensive it's not um it's probably one of the most uh, economically efficient ways of tackling your enemy that there's been in history um unfortunately it's not just about material it's about it's about people it's about you know their their blood and suffering and I think that's the horrific aspect of this. Um, and that's my next question as well, which is, I think, what has stunned the world, but perhaps Ukrainians are less surprised at this, um, is that when you see soldiers' bodies repatriated in Ukraine, they're treated as individuals. People go down on one knee. There is an incredible sense of the collective effort, but also that each soldier is an individual life and they are honoured as such. The Russians have reverted to an extraordinary, uh, depersonalized um, perspective on their dead. They don't even necessarily treat them or, or collect them, but they've moved to an era of history, which I think everyone has forgotten about, which is a, a complete lack of individualism 
or care for the value of an individual life? Uh, if you look on all the wars uh, where Russia took place, their uh, uh, casualties were always like way higher than anybody else. Yeah. So because of this huge human resource, this is the advantage uh, on the one side. And uh, uh, that just, uh, you know, depending on the geographical uh, positions and the attitudes you have, uh, that's how you act. So uh, it's nothing new, nothing new over here. Uh, obviously, I realized that in the end of this food chain, there is a family who lost, uh, you know, a father, even somewhere in, in Russia, and we cannot dehumanize that. Uh, this is also uh, very important. Uh, however, um, you know, um, if like million die, this is statistics. If one person die, it's a tragedy. So it's always important to, to think those ways. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, during the war times, most people um, speak about the statistics. Uh, however, it's true uh, that uh, Ukrainian soldiers are treated as real, real heroes. Uh, I live in a downtown of Lviv. Just across the street, there is um, uh, um, a, a church uh, where every day there is a funeral procession of several Ukrainian uh, soldiers happening. And uh, in every Ukrainian town and village, there is a part of the cemetery which is dedicated to the fallen soldiers like within last year, basically. So uh, this is sad to watch. Uh, in one of my videos, I'm simply driving along the peaceful village in Western Ukraine, and then I'm stuck with the traffic because there is a funeral procession going from the church. They carry the soldier in tomb by hands along the street blocking the traffic from both sides and then you know turn to the cemetery okay now i have this stuff but uh yeah this is the sad reality of war unfortunately and um, yeah in the end of the line people just lose life which cannot be returned back yeah that's it. And that's going to create uh, generations of enmity generations of distrust and even hatred for for russia which is uh is a terrible thing, uh, but completely understandable. Well, I mean, where I'd like to end on is you're involved in a lot of sort of uh, initiatives um, and you're extremely active, obviously, in informational resistance. You're extremely active in uh, in interviewing and speaking to, uh, you know, Western volunteers who are either serving uh, on the front lines or in some other capacity. I'd love to sort of learn for the audience here um, what can people do to help Ukraine? I mean, people might feel they're powerless uh, in the face of such terrible events, but there is something, isn't there, that everybody could do. So what are some ideas about how people can get involved to help towards Ukrainian victory? So there are a few scenarios what you can do. Uh, number one, and which is the most important to realize, is that Ukraine would not be able to sustain without a Western support. So please stay aware and vote for those politicians who are helping, who are like whose decisions directly affect on Ukraine. You know, like that's this is like very important. Vote for people uh, with this. Uh, second, if you want to be uh, involved like more directly somehow, um, look at the like initiatives within your proximity that are directly somehow connected to Ukraine. 
support Ukrainian refugees, involved in the medical assistance, uh, providing generators, and so on. And secondly, if you want to be even like more involved, it's super, super important to support Ukrainian army. So the governments provide weapons, but the civil society in Ukraine provides everything else. Yeah. And if in the previous year I was mostly focused on the humanitarian issues, now I decide like, okay, like it just goes all to the army because it's already been a year. Uh, all the fast responses people already got. Those who wanted to settle their life to move to different country, they already did it. Like now it's all mode on uh, to support the army. So uh, almost weekly, I create an initiative how I'm going to support. For example, about one week ago, I uh, within one day, I raised uh, enough funds to buy a SUV drive for my schoolmate with whom I was fight with whom I was studying law here in Lviv, who is now on Svatova direction in the north of Donbas. So we raised initiative, we bought a car, my colleague went to Poland, bought a car, yesterday I checked the car in the service, today in the following days it will be sent to the front line. You know, another initiative, uh, one of my readers from New York, Eva, thank you a lot Eva, she told Oris you're doing a great job, what can I do? I tell, okay, you're in New York, you're not going to travel here, obviously you vote for, for, for somebody, new congressman who is supporting Ukraine, if you want to enroll directly, you can buy Starlings. So she bought two Starlings. She, I provided the address in Poland. This was shipped to Poland. I took it from Poland, sent to my guys on the front line, and now they have communication in the trench where they stay. Yeah. Um, so that, let's do this. If you want to provide a Starling, which is doesn't involve any like push from you moving around, you can order it. You uh, you tell me like, what is what is the address? We send, I report, and I send you the picture, guys in the East who have the Starlink installed, and, you know, they can connect between themselves. So this is the way to go. Um, car is a running material, goes very fast, but it's complicated because it involves fixing, shipping, immigrate, like importing, and so on. Uh, Starlink is very efficient because you distantly can, can get it, sent, and without much involvement, uh, yeah, so this is the way to go. This helps very well. Because, you know, there are people uh, who want to support different initiatives in terms of their own personality. Yeah, Somebody is telling, I'm not, even though the army is the priority, they tell, I don't want to be involved into something lethal. L let me help animals, old grannies, children, but not uh, something lethal. Yeah, I, I'm not going to fund this killing of other people. Okay, Starlink works fine. It saves lives of people near the front line, including soldiers. And I will even tell you how it works, because I was there, I traveled. So our soldiers staying in the, like semi-destroyed houses in the villages near the front line. Usually in this village, there are some res local residents still living who, for different reasons, could not leave. Maybe they don't have money, they don't uh, understand what will happen beyond their village, maybe they have a family member who cannot move, you know, terrible situation. So soldiers, like soldier bases, they serve as uh, this like oasis for local civilian population. 
where they can come get food from soldiers, where they can connect and charge their phone, where they can speak with their relatives through the Starlink. Through the Starlink. So this is very, very helpful uh, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in addition, of course, militarily, they're able to pinpoint the uh, enemy troops with far greater accuracy. So it you know it's economical on ukrainian lives it's uh and and hopefully helps to end the war faster as well which is what uh, what we all want well we're going to post some links uh into the description of this video uh to sort of charities and organizations which uh people can contribute to, to if they want to get more involved um but lastly you're in lviv and of course it's you know prior to the war it's a very touristy city it's got beautiful architecture um, and it's relatively safe. You know, if people are feeling adventurous and if they want to help the Ukrainian economy, I mean, they, they can visit. Uh, it's something I would love to do as well. But uh, Lviv is relatively safe, isn't it? I can assure you that your visit to Lviv will be safer than to most adventurous areas around the world. First of all, there is almost there is zero street crime in the city. Uh, secondly, uh, it's logistically very easy to navigate. You simply fly to nearest airport in Poland and take train from the city of Przemysl. So you can buy a ticket online, sit on the train, fix schedule, you arrive to Lviv. Uh, as you see, internet is working. And just to uh, maybe enhance your visit a little bit, I will show you how the city looks like now. So this is the atmosphere in our city at the moment. So that's beautiful. So Lots of snow. <laughs> uh, yeah, the snow arrived just a couple of days, like two days ago. Before that, there was no snow. Um, all the restaurants are open. Hotels are open. You can book on booking online. Uh, the city functions like even for Ukrainians who come back from the east and even from Kiev, <laughs> they're very surprised how efficiently Lviv functions at the moment. And for many Ukrainians, this is like a trip for relief to Lviv before coming back, uh, you know, to modern reality. So you're welcome. Well, that's marvelous. I'm so appreciative that uh, you're able to uh, communicate to a Western audience in your fantastic English and to continue to push on the informational front. Um, and, uh, you know, really grateful to you for spending uh, an hour speaking to me uh and i learned a lot new there and hopefully we can do this again absolutely uh, thanks for providing your platform to, to to spread the message and uh i'm pretty sure that we will try to meet uh, in the like within one month because uh, during march uh, i am visiting london and manchester with my wife so if you will have time i'll be happy to to, to, to catch up and if uh, some of your listeners will be in the area or they want for example to talk to me i'm like my job is to spread the message from ukraine so i will happily will not sleep will not eat but i will go to your local like newspaper speak to journalists visit a local ngo center and meet the ukrainian community uh, this is like my part, what I'm also doing uh, in other countries uh, around Europe. So uh, I'll be happy to participate in that way too. Fantastic. If you're taking part in any events, let me know. We'll put it into the community chat so people can see that and reach out to you. Well, Arest, thank you so much. It's been absolutely brilliant. And uh, Slava Ukraina. Heroem Slava.